Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today you'll hear my conversation with Dory Clark from November 2022. So, Dory, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I was just telling you before we started recording how I'm a big follower of your work. And I'm going to refer to a few of your expressions and questions probably during the conversation. So when I do, just so listeners aren't confused, that's what I'm doing. So, um, Dory, what, what sort of person do you want to be? That's such a, it's, you know, just go, go for the profundity <laughs> jugular, Ollie. I like it. What kind of person do I want to be? You know, I would say on certainly on a on a day-to-day basis something that i feel like is highly underrated it might sound like a kind of trivial goal but to me is important is when i think about how i want to be i think that a rather paramount virtue is being friendly because mm. i think that you know it's it's just not that hard and I think that the world would definitely be better if if more people were like friendly, encouraging, nice. So I just I try I try to be that. I mean, I realize that you know that's not uh, necessarily sufficient to have a uh, profound life. But uh, <laughs> I, when I think about what actually can impact the most people on a day to day basis. Actually, just being a friendly, nice person, I feel like is uh, is kind of a, a good step forward. Well, it's surprising what you can get away with, or perhaps to put it another way, it's surprising how much leeway people give you when you are friendly and kind and nice. And you know, particularly, I think back to occasions, perhaps you know, early in my career when I made mistakes. I'll tell you what, it's a hell of a lot easier forgiving somebody a mistake when they do it in a pleasant way. Um, so I, I get that. I get that. Makes sense. I'm guessing you also have sort of guiding principles or certain values which tend to determine perhaps how you spend your time. Do you kind of actively define those values? Do you refer to those things every day? Well, you know, I don't I don't necessarily have a have a list per se, although um I do I do try to create create themes for myself. Uh, in terms of you know what is what is the thematic focus, and mm. I'm trying to remember for for 2022 what I set was uh, I have a, I actually do have it written down somewhere although it's not like posted to my wall uh, but it was the theme was uh, I know it was friends I wanted to focus on making friends and cultivating connections with friends because uh, I think the pandemic kind of took it took it out of us uh, for, for a lot of instances when it comes yeah. to um, relationships with people that you don't like live with. And monetization was another because I, you know, for a number of years, this was the subject of my book, Entrepreneurial You, I really have focused a lot on the question of multiple revenue streams and how to, how to create that, how to get more passive income, which frees up your time. Yeah. And uh, oh, and, and like, and like, you know, relaxation actually was another, because for my book last year, the long game, it was a super stressful launch. It was mm. just very, very taxing to me getting it out there. And so I wanted, you know, I, I'm a big believer. One of the concepts I talk about in the book is thinking in waves. And so I'm a big believer that sometimes you have to go hard, you know, you just have to do it and leave it all in the field. But you know, that's, 
that's fine for the short term, but it's not fine for the long term. And so I wanted to have a little time to decompress from that. Nice. A nice mix there. So you, so you mentioned a, a couple of points there, which I suppose relate to how you prioritize time and how you set limits around your priorities. And I wonder if we could explore that because I know you, you wrote in um, your last book about this idea, you know, about how we approach scheduling, how we make sure that we do focus on the right things, because of course, time is finite and we have to be realistic about it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to go into all that, but I, I, you've just made me curious with your, with your questions. Like, what kind of person do you want to be? How do you think about this? <laughs> do you know what? I actually, I did write down my values a, a couple of years ago. And as I was explaining to you, I have just written my first book. And if you remember back to your first book, I'm sure it doesn't get any easier, but it's quite a big undertaking. And I was thinking about all the different things that I wanted to communicate about kind of how I'd pivoted my career and rethought about the way I was designing my life. And I thought, well, if I'm not able to define the things that matter to me, uh, you know, I just wouldn't feel very, it wouldn't feel very authentic. So I did do that. And I, I, I've sort of listed down the things that were always important, that were important to me. And I kind of see if I can remember all five now, but there were things like humor, you know, I just, with work and in my life, if I'm not having some fun along the way, I I generally, I, I haven't got longevity. I'm not able to stick at something if I'm not having some of that fun. It's, which isn't to say it's not hard, but I always, always force myself in some cases to laugh about things. Um, I love that. Yeah, growth, you know, make sure we're always growing. I like the autonomy to make my own decisions. It's why I've been an entrepreneur and worked on my own for, for many years. Um, so, that, so that's really important to me as well God, i can't remember the others now but anyway that gives you an idea about some of the things that matter and i and i do i do think about these things you know as well i'm way, i'm way more reflective nowadays than i used to be about the work that i'm doing and i do and i want to be i want to be somebody who isn't a grumpy dad i want to be somebody who isn't difficult to be around and we all have our moments but on the whole I want to feel happy about the work I'm doing. Definitely kindness comes into it as well. In fact, that might have been on the list. I'll dig it out for you and share it afterwards. I should be able to remember it, shouldn't I? But, uh, but yes, yeah, so hope, hopefully that gives you an idea about sort of how I think about it. Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's fantastic. Um, I I think I think you've identified some really good ones. Now, uh, Ollie, what's what's the title of your forthcoming book? I'm really excited about it now. Yeah, it's called Work Life Flywheel so uh, yeah yeah so I kind of reject the idea of work-life balance or certainly suggest that we might think about it differently I I never got work-life balance when I was running my last business and it bothered me I was constantly chasing it and I could never work out why everyone else seemed to have it and I could never find I always felt like I wasn't that did everyone else seem to have it I feel like nobody that's what I realized that's what I realized (laughs) So anyway, I've I sort of borrowed this idea from tech, which I'm sure you know about, which is, you know, the fact that sometimes if you build a model which allows you to take really small steps, which sort of feed into one another, small incremental steps gradually build momentum. And over time, that's how you feel like you're making progress. And I really like that idea. And I sort of I thought, actually, that's better reflect how I think about my work life. So that's how I'm... Uh, that's how I'm framing the ideas in the book. And there's definitely similar themes to yours, to be honest, partly, the, you know, reinventing you. I've explained to you 
that that was driving what's made the decisions I've made about my career over the past couple of years. I had to reinvent what I was doing in, in every way, industry, lifestyle that I was leading, um, and also take a long a longer term view on what I was doing. So I think that's why the ideas you explore really resonate. It's so easy, isn't it, to just focus on what's happening day to day, especially when you're stuck inside for two years um, and not able to see your friends. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you for asking. And related to that, thinking about priorities, you know, that's that's something I've got far better at and setting boundaries and ensuring that I'm focused on the right thing. So I suppose sort of coming back to that that point, what is your general advice? How should people go about approaching that process of understanding what's important to them and then setting limits around how they manage their time? Yeah, I I definitely think that setting limits is the is a crucial part of what you're talking about, Ollie. I have come to believe, at least for myself, I mean, maybe maybe other people have more luck with this, but I've come to believe that half the battle in terms of my success, my sort of self-mastery, is essentially tricking myself into doing the things that I should be doing. Because, you know, we are very fallible creatures. And in, in the moment, we can come up with a million excuses and exceptions and things like that. And so finding ways to systematize things so that you don't really have a choice, you know, so that you've locked yourself into a positive behavior beforehand mm. is, is really important. And I know, you know, and it varies, right? There's different times. I remember years ago, I was living with a girlfriend at the time and I made a rule for myself and, and all I really needed to do was just make that rule. But I, I would find myself sort of working late into the night and I realized that that was not very conducive for the relationship. And so at that point, I made a rule that I was not going to work past 7 p.m. And I just I just wasn't. And mm. having that rule and then feeling bad, consequently, if I broke that rule, was a really helpful thing. Um, when I think about other sort of possibilities, this is not a rule exactly, but my latest trick, which is um, really surprisingly effective is I recently got a uh, a Nest, you know, the the remote control uh, thermostat. Yeah. yeah. And those are really helpful for an unexpected reason, which is I have set it to start turning the temperature way down at a certain time at night. And as a result, I do it before I'm in bed or supposed to be in bed. And it starts to get so cold in my house that I'm like, oh my God, I'm really cold. I need to get a sweater or I could go to bed. And it's like, oh, right. Cause I'm trying to right. incentivize myself to go to bed at the time that I should be going to bed. Yeah. That's a great idea. My wife's always saying it's too cold in our house. So perhaps I've inadvertently um, <laughs> set that limitation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You'll really freak her out if you make it cold enough for you to think it's cold. Yeah. My frugalness when it comes to energy was designed for the energy crisis that we're currently experiencing in the UK. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, I, um, I love this expression in, I think it was in your most recent book. And I wrote about it in my book. That's how much I loved it. This idea of optimizing for interesting. Because when we're setting goals or when we're deciding what career we want, it can often seem so overwhelming that people just get lost in the process and pretty often probably just give up on it. And they think, oh, how am I supposed to you know, make these decisions? I love this idea that you talked about optimizing for interesting because it, it reduced it to a simple equation. So would you mind explaining so how you came up with that and how you think about it, how you apply that in your life and seeing other people do it? 
Yeah, thank you, Ollie. Well, you know, I, I think we all put so much stress on ourselves when it comes to, you know, finding the right thing. You know, what's the right career? What's my passion? What am I meant to do? Mm-hmm. And I think that culturally we understand that if that were applied to a different area of your life, like romance, a lot of people would be like, whoa, like chill out. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically the equivalent of like, well, is he my soulmate? I mean, are we meant to be together from the stars, you know? And it's like, oh boy. Okay. Like how about a, how about a second date first, you know? And it, it sounds ridiculous in romance, but yet in work, we often are, are striving for that standard. And of course, it's kind of an impossible standard, right? I mean, even, you know, like 99 times out of 100, even if you meet like the person you're going to marry, you don't necessarily know it at first sight, right? And so I think we need to just take the pressure off and ask ourselves a much better and simpler question, which is, is it interesting to me? Because that is something that anyone can answer. It's relatively low stakes. It's yes or no. And it enables you to keep going and keep pursuing something until it stops being interesting. And then, it, you know what? If it stops being interesting, so what? Too bad. Let's let's pick something else. Like, it's not the end of the world. It's It's just pursuing things in a way that enables you to get going, which is how you actually gain skills, gain experience, gain the knowledge you need to figure out where you want to go. And the, the advantage is that, um, you know, that, that forward momentum really has a life of its own and you'll enjoy it in the process. Yeah, that's such an important point. Most of the time when I ask people whether they're enjoying their work, it often comes down, well, there's a few factors, but often it comes down to the feeling of making progress. It's so important and clearly it's far easier to, as you suggested, get up and do something if you're finding it interesting. I'm interested in this sort of long-term idea and it is difficult sometimes to feel like you're making the right decision in your career. So how do you get the right balance between pursuing ambitious long-term goals but also, you know, get some perspective and focus on what's happening day to day? Yeah, I mean, this is this is... There's lots of different possibilities, but in many ways, one of the concepts that I think is most salient here is something that I also talk about in the long game, which is the idea of 20% time, which Google made popular years ago by encouraging their employees to spend up to 20% of their time on sort of longer range, you know, I'll call them discretionary activities. These are like experimental ideas that may or may not work. They may or may not pan out. Um, you know, it's sort of like your own venture capital portfolio, basically. Like if it pays off, it could really pay off. But if it doesn't, I mean, eh, okay. And and I think it's so smart to be thinking about our lives and our careers this way. Because, you know, if you spend 20% of your time on something and it, and it comes to naught, I mean, that'll suck. It's not great, but it's not like, oh, I'm bankrupt. I'm ruined. It's terrible. My life is over, right? It's 20% of your time. I mean, presumably you've been spending the other 80% doing something that, you know, is more lucrative or that you know works or is relevant in the short term. And people are like, yes, this is good. Let's give you money for it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it's only 20%, not the reversed ratio. But conversely, if you're spending 20% of your time on something and it actually seems like it really is gaining traction, over time, you know, 20% and then another 
uh, you know, it's, it starts to add up. It's enough so that you see some progress. And when you see that there's momentum, it enables you to strategically start reallocating more and more of your portfolio to that thing. So I I feel like too few of us think that way. You know, we, we kind of either just do all of something or nothing of something. And I really want to say, no, no. I mean, like, let's think of it like stock market investing, right? What's your, what's your risky bet? And how do you incorporate a little bit of that just to uh, spice up the portfolio? Yeah, definitely. Well, talking of portfolios, and you mentioned earlier on um, that you've kind of taken a focus to try and have more passive income. And, you know, I suppose what you're doing there is diversifying your portfolio, your career portfolio. And I wonder whether actually that is a great mindset for people to be taking right now. You don't have to be an entrepreneur or solopreneur to be doing this stuff. If you've got a job, you know, hedging your risk in the current economic climate sounds like a pretty good idea. So I wonder actually whether now is the perfect time to be developing these kind of side projects, these side interests to try to cultivate something which might yield results. And like you said, you know, the worst that can happen is you enjoy doing something new, but maybe what you're doing is diversifying yourself to a point where you increase your earning potential during a tricky time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am I'm the world's biggest fan of risk mitigation. So <laughs> I, I think especially now when we're at a period where, you know, the world hasn't collapsed, but you can you can see scenarios in which it might. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good moment to start planning for things. And, you know, one of my favorite examples that I cite in my book, Entrepreneurial You, which is really about how to create multiple revenue streams in your business and, you know, your your life overall uh, is about a guy named Pat Flynn, who is now a fairly well-known podcaster. But if we go back to the last economic crisis in 2008, he was an employee at an architecture firm. And he, you know, architecture was one of the industries that was hit hardest in 2008 because all of a sudden, you know, all the, all the money dried up, therefore all the money for like large construction projects dried up. So a lot of these places had to do massive layoffs and Pat's firm was no different, but something that he had done, which was, which was almost accidental, but ended up being his saving grace was that he had been trying to pass this architecture exam. And, you know, a lot of people were trying to pass the same exam. So he wrote these study notes that he put on the internet. And at a certain point, he realized, oh, this is actually getting a lot of traffic. Like, you know, people are interested in this. And he thought, huh, I wonder if people would pay for it if I took all the stuff that's on like, you know, sort of a random website and I put it into a PDF to make it easier for people to read like as a book. And so he starts selling it as a book, you know, for like 30 bucks a pop and, Within a few months, he is actually making more money from selling the PDF of his book than he was from his architecture job, which was very handy because two months later, he got laid off from the architecture job. So it really became the proof of concept for him that that internet business could work. And I think it's it's powerful because, you know, almost anybody can do that. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to literally be, oh, create a PDF and sell it, but almost anybody can can do things like that that can open up new revenue streams and make you more economically secure. Most definitely. And I talk a lot about people being willing to share their ideas with the world. And this is something I struggled with. Even you know, I ran a business for 10 years. I was a salesperson. I worked in advertising. You'd think I would be really comfortable with sharing my ideas with the world. And actually, I, I couldn't do it. I was just nervous. You know, it's imposter syndrome. It's fear of people not you know, thinking what I was doing was good. And actually, I kind of massively got over that, as you can tell, from <laughs> over the past couple of years. Um, 
And I talk about it because thinking about how you attract other people to your ideas and demonstrating that you're different, that's a really good way of doing it. And actually, I think that's where the optimizing for interesting thing comes in, because you know, let's just take the architecture example, two architects, both of whom are very different personalities and have two different sets of interests. Well, actually, you might be drawn to one more than the other. And I think over time, this is a really simple way. Now we've got the leverage and the, the reach of social media to be able to, to put your ideas out there. Again, maybe that's the simple way that you, you know, the, the time, you 20% of your time that you could be spending over the next couple of years. I suppose putting yourself out there is the main thing, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's the starting point, right? I mean, one of the, one of the things that I write about, um, in my work is about how to become a recognized expert in your field. And I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question. I run an online course and community focused on it. And I've come to realize there's really three key components. It's content creation, social proof, and network. And the reason content mm. creation is so important is that if you do not publicly share your ideas, only the people who are in your immediate vicinity are going to know what they are, right? I mean, the people who like literally work day to day with you will be like, oh, Ollie has great ideas. He's awesome. But beyond that, it's like, well, how, do, how does anybody know? They're like, well, he's nice, but uh, I don't know. Mm. You know. So you have to find a vehicle to share your ideas publicly. It could be writing, but it could be podcasts. It could be videos. It could be speaking at conferences, you know, whatever it is. But somehow you have to give people who do not literally already work with you a way to see your ideas and be like, oh, that's smart. If you don't do that, it's really, really hard to gain traction. Yeah. Explain what strategic leverage means. So strategic leverage is uh, another one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game. And the, the basic idea there is there are... <laughs> You know, as as we're making choices in our life about what to spend time on, what to spend our energy on, um, it, it can feel a little overwhelming and a little complicated. And so if you can find ways to maximize the value of, of what you're doing, to sort of make, essentially make a particular choice count twice, or to be able to, uh, to make a choice that might appear suboptimal, but actually it's it's the most optimal because it gets you another goal. Um, that's something really clever and really special. And you know, it could be something as you know simple as you know. I, I cite an example in the long game of a, a colleague of mine named Phil Van Nostrand, who's a, a great photographer, and he will sometimes accept gigs for less than his full price. Uh, you know, he charges good, good amounts of money. So people can't always pay, but he's willing to do in-kind trades. And what I love about it is that, you know, really his goal, it's not about earning money per se. His goal has always been that he wants to lead, uh, you know, sort of like an, like an epic lifestyle. He, you know, he, he is working on a book now called like, uh, you know, an epic, something about like an epic freelance lifestyle, which nice. I love. And, yeah. you know, how do you make your life epic? Well, one way is to have a ton of cash, but if that's, if that's not in the cards for a particular gig, another great way to have an epic life is to make these in-kind trades. So he has done things like do photo shoots for this woman who creates these very elaborate, like super expensive, like, like cashmere scarves. And so she just gives him a boatload of cashmere scarves, which means <laughs> that he's got holiday presents for everybody. You know, he's like, he's wearing cashmere scarves now. I mean, he wouldn't 
you know, is he going to spend $800 on a scarf for himself? Absolutely not. But now he has these baller gifts to give everybody <laughs> in his life. He gets gift certificates to restaurants so he can take his friends out. You know, I mean, there's a lot of really clever ways that you can actually create the life you want. Yeah. Is that, am I remembering rightly? Does he, did he also just bag loads of amazing trips to offlung places? Is that, yes, is that, is exactly. That yeah. He yeah. had friends that wanted photo shoots and he would tag along and do it for free if they'd pay all his travel expenses. <laughs> so he got to hang out with his friends in these really glamorous locations like Venice and the South of France. And, you know, he's, he's taking pictures, which he likes to do anyway. Uh, yeah. And just, you know, really uh, having, having experiences, which is the commodity that mattered the most to him. Nice. Living an epic life. That is a great summary, isn't it? <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you about patience. So we live in, I think we probably agree, we probably live in a short-term world, a very short-term world for a lot of people. I think a lot of people judge their work and maybe their worth in some cases on likes and comments and social media, you know, the feedback from people who perhaps don't have a real sense about the the contribution they're making it doesn't cry out patience for me but of course patience is important when you're developing your career I, I wonder when people are taking these sort of experimental ideas and trying them out how do they know when to ditch and when an experiment's failing versus when to be patient with it yeah this is this is the crucial question right because it's the not knowing that kills people i mean you know, not, not everybody, you know, has, has the patience to, to withstand waiting, you know, even if they know that there's a good outcome, but I would say that the majority of people, if, if, if I said to you, you know, Ollie, this can take five years of hard work, but at the end of five years, you're guaranteed to have this go great. You know, you'll have a great exit. It'll, it'll look good. It, you know, oh, you'll make a lot of money. You'll be like, you know what? Uh, I can suck it up. But we don't get guarantees. That's, that's the problem, right? It's, oh, you know what, Ollie, at the end of five years, the end of 10 years, this might be super successful or you might've wasted a lot of time. (laughs) And (laughs) the majority of people are like, well, F that. (laughs) And so they do the thing, you know, they grab the low hanging fruit. That's, that's, you know, less profound, less meaningful, but that they know it's going to be there. And so it really does take a lot of courage. It takes a leap of faith in some ways, but, uh, so I, I do think in some ways, uh, having a long-term view really is a matter of character that are you willing to, to make, uh, to make that commitment, even, even knowing it might not work out. But that being said, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of rolling the dice, but you can be smart about it. Like we don't want you to be an idiot and be like, I'm just gonna do it no matter what. And I would say that the two crucial things, which so many people overlook, number one is proper scoping and making sure at the beginning that you've actually, which so many people don't do, that you've actually done proper research to determine what has happened in the past. You are likely not the only person in the world who is attempting whatever you're doing, right? So there's some kind of history. What does that look like? How long does it normally take people? What does it normally take? That's number one. And then number two is is what I call looking for the, for the raindrops, where it's finding measures of incremental progress that you can track to help determine if you're on the right trail. Um, a lot of times people don't even pay attention to those because they think they're too small to notice, but it's actually those small things that begin to give you hints about whether, uh, the path is a correct one. 
Yeah, so definitely. Oh, a couple of follow-up questions there. I've written something down so I don't forget to ask you. But uh, to that point, I know you wrote in the long game about becoming a recognized expert. If you start writing um, content online or doing a podcast, very seldom does it happen overnight. Happening overnight being, you know, becoming a recognized expert and becoming a rich recognized expert. These things take time, don't they? I think that you... I can't remember the exact number, but certainly it was two, three years before, you know, some of the people you've worked with started seeing real traction from the content creation that they've committed to and are consistent with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you can imagine, it's, it's a little bit more art than science to, uh, to estimate, you know, how long does it take to become a recognized expert? But, um, but that's the answer people want is, you know, how long does it take? And so I, I decided I would not be doing my job if I did not at least attempt to provide an answer. And so because, uh, since 2016, I've been running this, uh, community focused on that question of, you know, smart, talented professionals that are looking to get their ideas heard more widely. We have about 700 people who have gone through the program. So I, I now have a fairly uh, broad sample of people. This is not just my own experience, although I, you know, I, I've, I've made this journey myself of attempting to become a recognized expert, but I have seen a lot of people uh, work the program, as it were. And so, yes, I, what, I, what I believe to be the case is that two, it's about two or three years of repeated, consistent effort. I don't mean, you know, you write one blog post and then you stop and you do another one six months later. You know, it's two or two to three years of consistent effort is actually when you start to see basically any results, right? For two or three years, it's kind of nothing happening. But, but at year two, year three, you start to see the raindrops. You start to see the, oh, hey, Ollie, would you be on my podcast? Or, you know, oh, hey, would you do this guest post? I mean, we can't pay anything, but, you know, we'd like you to do the guest post. And it's small, right? And, and somebody might be like, oh, whatever. But it has to be recognized that that is a form of progress. And then it's by about year five that you actually really start to get meaningful traction. And, and you know, that means what we want it to mean, which is people who are seeking you out unsolicited to give you money to do things. That's the dreamland, right? That's what a lot of people are aiming for. So you just got, you got to keep, <laughs> keep at it. Um, That's right. The question I wrote down, you know, you could clearly see your, progress if somebody comes knocking on the door unsolicited and says can you come and offer your expert opinion for a large fee to speak at our event but very often we have to be a little bit more reflective and a bit more mindful about the way that we track our progress how do you do that I mean do you keep a journal do you have any system to make sure that you don't forget the progress that you're making says life does fly by doesn't it sometimes it's difficult to remember how you were thinking you know, six months ago, let alone remember the state of mind and, you know, your objectives at that point. So I'm just wondering how you approach that. Yeah, you raise a really good point. And, and in the long game, I talk about a concept that is actually used in the, in the biological sciences called shifting baseline syndrome, uh, where, you know, the, it, as the name implies, you sort of, you're tracking things incorrectly because you're picking the wrong starting point. I think that that for most people, if we actually went back in time and you know it was like, okay, you get to whisper in the ear of Ollie of five years ago and be like, hey, did you know that you get to do blah, blah, blah in 2022? Do you know, you, hey, you, get, you have a book that's going to be coming out. Did you know that you are going to blah, blah, blah? You'll be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's amazing. But you know, if we go back to 
to, you know, like the, the Ollie of today, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not picking on, on you. This is like <laughs> all of us. It's like, hey, you know, we, you've got a book coming out and you got this and this and this. But, and the sort of human response is, yeah, but... I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get, um, you know, Barack Obama's endorsement on the book or yeah, but I didn't get a seven figure advance or yeah, but you know, Ted hasn't asked me to give a main stage talk yet. You know, like we keep, we keep focusing mm. on the thing that we don't have. And, you know, that's actually evolutionarily very helpful for us as humans because it keeps us moving forward. But in terms mm. of our own happiness and satisfaction, it's very unhelpful. And so we need, to, we need to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves that actually a few years ago, you would have thought this was pretty damn cool. So uh, there was another question I wanted to ask you. You, you referenced it slightly earlier, but uh, it's about networking. You're a bit of a legend when it comes to networking strategies. Um, so what's one piece of advice re related to building your network that most people wouldn't have considered before? Ah, oh, well, well, thank you. I appreciate it, Ollie. You know, when it comes to to building your network, I think that just in terms of mindset, something that is really important to recognize a lot of people feel like they 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 can't be the host they have to wait to be invited to something uh because you know they somehow think like oh like hosts are special or like you know i couldn't do that and i mean of course yes you can everybody can be the host and i will argue everybody should be the host and let me let me make my pitch here ollie because you know i i recently moved to miami so i mean i'm in the thick of this right like like I'm in this new city, so I've got I gotta make friends, I gotta make business contacts. So I I am having to do this and live this out in real time. So this is not just something that I am blathering on about. This is something I've done many times and I am doing in the present. Um, literally right now, I'm trying to gin people up for, you know, drinks on Sunday night, you know, and sending invitations and whatever. We often think like, oh, well, people will feel imposed upon or, you know, oh, it would be weird if I asked them or, you know, and it's not. Most people are passive and therefore they welcome somebody else inviting them. They will they will be grateful. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about invite, you know, the billionaire down the street. They probably have enough invitations. But for most people that are not like celebrities, they they don't have enough invitations. And so for you to reach out is actually really fantastic. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. I literally send a message. I'm like, Hey, I'm getting together a small group of people, you know, small group of interesting people for cocktails. Would you like to join? And as long as the person, you know, sort of knows you enough to know like, Oh, you're a good person. You're, you know, you're interesting. You'll get interesting people together. They will probably say yes. And you know what, if they don't want to come, if they're not interested in it, that's okay too. It's just, it's, it's very easy for people to actually say, Oh gosh, sorry, I can't do it. It's not, it's not like you're putting a gun to their head. But it's really so extraordinarily valuable in terms of community and cohesion for us to step up and to be willing to be the host of something. Definitely. Well, I had high hopes for our conversation and uh, Dory, you've not disappointed. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. I've really enjoyed chatting. I wonder if there's anything else you want to share with us just to, to wrap up today. Well, thank you, Ollie. I appreciate it. I I will just mention, in case it's of interest to your listeners, I was alluding before to the concept of a, becoming a recognized expert. You know, you were asking about sort of feeling confident and speaking up and sharing your ideas. And so, I actually have something that I created, which I I am fairly proud of because I I spent a lot of time 
putting it together and, and I've heard from a number of people that it, they've found it quite useful. Um, it is a recognized expert self-assessment and it's basically a scored self-assessment that people can take. It gives you a score where it takes about 10 or 15 minutes to fill out, but it enables you on the the three um, the three levers of content creation, social proof, and your network. Uh, it's a series of questions that enables you to get a score and then really understand, unique to you, where you should be spending your time and energy in terms of building up your portfolio as a recognized expert. If you want to be known more for your ideas, this is sort of a, a guidepost to help you think through where the best ROI is. And if folks are interested in it, you can get it for free at doryclark.com slash toolkit, T-O-O-L-K-I-T. Fantastic. So actually, can I just follow up with one question related to what you said there? So the content creation bit makes sense. Networking makes sense. Talk to me about social proof and specifically what you mean by social proof in that context. Yes. So social proof is a concept that gets talked about uh, a bit in the world of psychology. And basically how, how I am using it is social proof is the the credibility that you are telegraphing to other people, essentially. Because we know, in general, that people are a skeptical lot. <laughs> they, are, they are very busy. They're pulled in a million directions. And if they are overwhelmed with information, the easiest thing in the world for them to say is, no. And so if you're trying to get established, if you're trying to get your ideas heard, you know, it would be really super nice if everybody was like, gosh, let me consider that in depth. Let me, let me read your book and see how good your book is. Let, you know, let me, let me listen to your hour long speech and then I can judge about the quality of your content. And the, the truth is they're not going to do that. I mean, you know, let's be honest. You're not going to do that either because we're so busy. So people are looking for shortcuts. They're looking for heuristics. And so we need to help them. If we want our ideas to be heard, we need to help them with their shortcuts by providing social proof, meaning the telegraphing markers of credibility so that people are willing to give you a chance. And usually this takes the form of associating yourself with other brands that they trust so that you can say, oh, well, if Ollie's been published in this magazine and in this magazine, and if you know he's lectured at this university and that university, if he's consulted for this, this company I've heard of and that company I've heard of, he's probably credible. And so the more we can be smart about, A, how to you know, sort of wend our way into obtaining those credentials and B, how to make sure that we're telegraphing them properly so that people are aware of them, the more likely it is that other people will listen to us, take us seriously and give our ideas a fair chance. Brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again for your time. I'm going to put links in the show notes to all of your great work. And uh, sorry, thanks for joining me again. Ollie, great to talk to you. Thanks. <laughs>